Morning, everybody. Man, it's really good to see you. Um, man, it's just that, sorry, I actually got just really emotional just singing that last song. Um, man, it is just so good to see you. It, it's a beautiful time. I can now officially say uh, Merry Christmas. It's the Christmas season. Now, some of you might be saying, uh, homie, Christmas season started November 1st. What are you talking about? <laughs> that, that, that's my household. I came home one day, November 1st, uh, from a meeting, and uh, Ashley and Piper were sitting there dancing to Mariah Carey, and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> now, again, we're free in Christ, so celebrate Christmas all year long. I'm being reformed a little bit. Um, but it is. It, it's a beautiful time. There's a lot of fun traditions and fun family activities to go on. We just, this weekend, uh, had an awesome family movie night that was put on by Pam and her team. With it was a really great uh, and forever memorable, uh, I know for us, uh, uh, it was a Creation Land and Kids, uh, 121 Kids concert that was awesome. Wendy Kaplinger and Jody Thompson just did a phenomenal job heading that up. If you happen to be here, yeah, absolutely. They did great. And many others. There were so many of you all just serving. It was truly phenomenal. It made such a fun memory. Uh, if you were here, my son was the guy over here in the red doing the interpretive dance uh, and just kind of spinning around. It was pretty awesome. Uh, that's going to be a great video that we'll show him one day. Uh, it's just, it was a ton of fun. We, we also as a family, Grapevine is just so fun. I love talking about Grapevine, especially my family out in Tennessee, uh, just how Grapevine goes all out uh, for Christmas. And we did the North Pole Express. And actually, we have a really cool opportunity as a church body where we've partnered with the, with the city of Grapevine. And you can serve on Sundays. You can go online and check out different time slots where you can serve right next to the North Pole Express in a place that's called The Lodge. And there are so many people that are just out in that area. It's a phenomenal opportunity to meet with uh, people in the community. And what we're doing is actually at this one spot, it's a place where we're gonna be kind of doing crafts for kids. And it's just a great opportunity to meet so many people and in fact, invite them to church on Christmas Eve. Many of you all are here because somebody invited you to a Christmas service and your whole journey with 121 started because of that invitation. So I just want to cheer all of us on. Uh, and if you're interested in that, you can go and find that information on the website as well. It's really cool that we get to do that. Uh, it, it is. It's a fun time, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, but also, though, it can be difficult. Because while, yes, we're sitting around, we're watching these amazing families on Hallmark, and we're just seeing all these moments, it, it, if you take a second and you, you kind of look at your life, for a lot of us, our families don't look like that. I, our families are not just like harmonizing around a grand piano. I, there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of brokenness, and a lot of shame in our families. And sometimes I think we put too much of a weight on Christmas being the thing that's going to fix everything. Christmas is the long for toll hope. Christmas is when it's going to be the one that really fulfills all the family's brokenness. And that's just not reality. And oftentimes Christmas can put a weight on you that you just don't even know what to do with. That's one of the reasons why in this Christmas season, we're looking at the family tree of Jesus. And specifically, we're looking at the women in the line of Jesus Christ. So if you look in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke are the two Gospel genealogical accounts of Jesus. Now, Luke and Gospel, both of their accounts are very different. And it's not because one got it right or one got it wrong, but rather they're writing to two different audiences. In Luke's Gospel, he's writing to kind of fill in the gaps of knowledge for Theophilus. 
Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you look at Matthew's account, he starts it off and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by way of Tamar. Now, the listener at the day would have had their ears perked up. First off, Matthew starts with the patriarch Abraham, the guy. And he puts Jesus right next to the guy Abraham. And then if you continue going through it, the reader and subsequently the listener would have been shocked at the names mentioned because there is a lot of brokenness in this line. There is a lot of hurt, and there are a lot of things that just make you go, whoa. And I, I don't know if there's more of a, a more picture of brokenness in the Bible than the story of Tamar. It is tough. Now, I just have to say this at the outset. There's a lot of stuff in here. There's some stuff that just does not make sense. Uh, there, for, for, as you see it, uh, it make, doesn't make sense almost from the outset, like where it's at. It's in the middle of Joseph's story, if you're familiar with Joseph. Uh, it is graphic in its detail. And there's also a lot of things that are going on in kind of Near Eastern cultural tradition that doesn't make sense to us with where we are today in the West. But also in it, in the midst of a ton of brokenness is a picture of God's providential grace and how he works all things for his good and glory. And Tamar's story is very similar to a lot of ours. It starts with a broken family. So uh, the story of Tamar is in Genesis 38. So you could turn there in your Bible. If you don't have one, no big deal. We'll have the verses up on the screen. But <clears throat> so it starts out Genesis 38. Starting in verse 1, it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, I love that. It said it happened at that time. So uh, if you're familiar with this, imagine it's like a movie going on. So what's happening is uh, in Genesis 37, we, we're going through the book and we're now entering into the portion of the, G, of the Genesis narrative where we're seeing Jacob. And we're now going to see in Genesis 37 and following what happens to the descendants of Jacob. Right from there, we see Joseph's story. Now, what happens to Joseph, if you're familiar with Joseph, Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. Joseph uh, is given a beautiful coat that he wears. And Joseph is hated by his brothers. They decide, we hate this guy so much, we're going to kill him. And Judah actually comes up with the plan and he says, whoa, 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 guys, he's our brother. Let's not be horrible and kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery. So like, okay, well, then they go to Jacob and say, well, we can't just say we sold him off into slavery. So we'll cover it up. And they take his coat and they drench it in blood. And they go to Jacob and they say, your favorite son, Joseph, was brutally devoured by animals. Jacob rips his cloak and wails and weeps before God. So now for a movie, it's now cut scene, Judah. So now we're about to see what happens to Judah. And Judah turns aside from his family. 
he, he leaves his family. That turning aside, it's literally saying, I'm turning away from my traditions. I'm not only leaving them physically, I'm leaving every sort of culture that they have behind. I mean, you just do your dad like that and then you leave him? I mean, that is, that is some broken stuff. Now he meets up, he goes outside and uh, he, gets, he meets up with a guy named Hira. Now, we don't know much about him, but what's interesting is his name means uh, noble or freedom noble. So it's kind of this idea, you could kind of picture, he most likely uh, is wealthy. He's probably from a ruling class. And you could probably picture this, he's probably a partier. So you can kind of get a picture of what's going on. Judah leaves his family, leaves all of his people behind, and he's going up and he kind of gets connected with this guy that he's going to go party and live out his wild life. Well, he meets a Canaanite woman, and he then has three sons from this woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah then, as customary, takes a wife for his oldest son, and that's how we meet Tamar. We see in verse 7 what happens next. So Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, we, we, don't know what it, we don't know what Ur was doing. However, though, he is a wicked individual. And imagine the kind of wickedness that he was doing for God to just strike him down. That is powerful language. It says he was doing wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. That is wicked. Now, Judah then actually quotes uh, the Hittite law code. So at the time, if you're, if you're familiar uh, with this area in, in Near Eastern uh, history, there's several different law codes that are happening. Remember, Deuteronomy is not for several years. Uh, so there is no kind of moral code given by Jesus yet. So there's all these different law codes that are out there. Uh, the Hittite law code, some of you might be familiar with the code of Hammurabi. Uh, there's all these different kind of law codes to add some sense of morality to just life. So he quotes the Hittite law code. This law would actually end up being adopted and in fact redeemed and refined in Deuteronomy chapter 25 by Moses with what is to then be called leveret marriage. So this is a practice where if a brother was to die, the other brother was then to take his wife to give her a child so that the brother's name would go on and also so the wife now has financial security and stability because all the inheritance doesn't go to the wife or a mother. It goes to the son. So if you're a widower, you're, you're in, a, you're in a, a trouble spot. So we see here Judah then proceeds with uh, what he's supposed to do at this time with the future leverant marriage. The problem is Onan is just as wicked as Ur because the Bible very explicitly tells us that every time Onan uh, would go and have sex with Tamar, he would, in fact, instead of give her a child, he would spill his seed on the ground. Because he knew that all of the inheritance that Ur was going to get through Judah and beyond would go to that child. And so instead, what was happening was he was trying to avoid that to get all the inheritance. Now, uh, this is awful in the sight of the Lord. And it says here then 
in verse 10, and he, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar and his, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my third son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, there's a lot going on here. But just for a second, try to put yourself in Tamar's shoes. You are given to a man who had just lied and manipulated his father, left his family, sold his brother into slavery, and has now completely rejected all of his family line. You then are given a husband, and he is so wicked, God strikes him down dead. You are given a second husband, and this guy is so wicked as well, he is struck down dead. See, what Onan was doing was not just sexually abusing her, He was also mentally abusing her because at the time here, unfortunately, if you could not produce a child as a woman, you were looked down upon by society. But the problem is she could. It it wasn't her fault. It was Onan. And now her name is going out and it's being shamed in everyone. And they think she's a black widow. I mean, can you imagine the loneliness she probably felt. She is being abused and used. And then she is told by her father-in-law, remain in this house with no inheritance, no property rights, a shamed identity. Remain here till my third son grows up. That is a horrible, lonely existence. And there is a lot of brokenness in this family. And unfortunately, with a broken family, often comes a pattern of brokenness that proceeds to follow after and spread to everyone around them. That's what we then see next. So in verse 12, it's in the course of time, the wife of Judah dies. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now, I want you to notice a pattern that's going on here. Uh, again, there's similar language. There's in a course of time. There's a period of death and grief. And then Judah meeting up with his buddy Hira, and they're going to go off and do their thing. Now, not only does Judah here show a pattern of uh, leaving his family kind of in difficult times, but he also here is showing a pattern of forsaking responsibility. Because remember, he left his family in the middle of grief that he caused. He then leaves Tamar, legally required to give his son Shelah over. Shelah has grown up now, and he's fully of age. But Judah, it says in the Bible here explicitly, never intends on giving him over in marriage. So he is forsaking his responsibility to Tamar. And he goes up, and he's going to go do his thing with his buddy. So Tamar hears about this, and she then starts forming a plan to get her out of her life situation. She removes her veil of grief, and she then puts on a different veil to cloak herself as if she was a prostitute. She then positions herself uh, at a gate that's on the road where Judah was going up. And then we see, we see what 
what Tamar knew about Judah's pattern of deviancy. She knew he'd be going up there. She knew she would see her as a prostitute. And she knew the kind of man Judah was. In verse 15, Judah saw her. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. See, Judah continues with his pattern of deviancy and now engages in sexual immorality. I actually appreciate how kind of gruesome this language is because it's showing Judah didn't even see a person at all. He just saw a woman to have sex with. He didn't even recognize it was his daughter-in-law. All he saw on the road was just a woman that he could then get his sexual gratification off with. That's the kind of guy Judah is. So what then proceeds happen to happen is uh, unfortunate, an unfortunate reality of prostitution where they essentially start haggling over a price. Uh, and so Judah then says, I will give you a goat. Now, again, notice this. He, he didn't have any sort of, he didn't have any money essentially with him. So he says, I'll give you some money. She says, okay, well, how will I know you're good for it? He then says in verse 17, uh, I'll give you a pledge. Or she says, I'll give me a pledge until you send it, which would be essentially the payment. Uh, he says, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hands. That's going to come into play later. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. What she did was essentially ask him for your wallet, your car keys, and your ID. That's really what she did. <laughs> she said, I'm going to hold these as collateral until you pay me the goat that you promised me. Judah then goes into her and impregnates her. And again, we've got to stop for a second. We've got to just acknowledge there is a lot going on here. There is a lot. However, though, I think we have to note the power dynamics at play. Judah is, again, abdicating his essential responsibility to take care of Tamar. And instead, he lies to her. He basically shelves her in her house. And he then preys upon her sexually. Now, did, in this scenario, did Tamar lie? Yes. Did she kind of engage, kind of, did she engage in some sexual immorality? Absolutely. However, though, if you think back to this, she has nothing. She has been abused and lied about for years. She is desperate. She is hopeless. And oftentimes, women who enter into any sort of prostitution, they enter because of massive, massive abuse in their past, massive amounts of hurt, and massive amounts of desperation. They feel like they have nothing they can do except use the one thing they feel like they have control over, and that's their body. And any man who engages and that kind of prostitution is eating the fruit of, se of sexual abuse. 
This is brokenness of the highest regard. She had nothing, nothing to do. So she felt like he was, this was the one thing I could do to get what was rightfully mine. It is awful. So she then is pregnant, and we then, in the midst of this brokenness, we start to see a redemption moment breaking through. So Judah... Uh, he goes back after all this happens and he sends his servants up and he says, okay, hey, take the goat and go find the cult prostitute, which again speaks back to just his deviancy. Judah thought he was engaging with like a cult prostitute. He thought he's completely rejected all sense of his former past uh, in following God. They come back to him and they say, "Uh, we cannot find the cult prostitute. So Judah goes back to his pattern of brokenness and trying to cover things up. He says, Oh, well, we literally are going to be embarrassed by this. So let's just let her have all the stuff and move on. Act like this never happened. Well, in verse 24, it's now been about three months later, and Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. What? Who does this guy think he is? What what leg does this guy think he has to stand on? He's saying, let her out and be burned for him morality. He's been immoral. He's been the one who's been, who, who, if anything, should be burned. But he says, let her come out and be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. It's a mic drop moment. Now, think back to his pattern of brokenness. Judah has lied. Judah has abused. He has used his power to cover things up. He is caught. And in a remarkable moment of redemption... Judah repents. And he says here, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah breaks the pattern, breaks the history of brokenness in his life, and he not only repents, he then, in a surprising twist, says, She is more righteous than I. How? How could this be? Well, actually, according to the Hittite law code, if a, bro- if a brother uh, was not able to produce a male heir, the father-in-law was obligated to do so. So by the law, Tamar was righteous. By the law, Tamar had right standing. And she gets deemed no longer a black widow or a prostitute, more righteous. And in a beautiful turn of God's grace, 
this is the only time a woman in the Old Testament has been given the title of righteous. A redemption moment, breaking through in the midst of the brokenness. Now, we see something even greater at play here. A family line from this is changed forever. You see, because if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, God spoke to Abraham and he said, from you will be a nation of many nations. From you will be great descendants. Then that blessing goes to Isaac and then goes to Judah's, uh, <coughs> Judah's father, Jacob. In Genesis 37, God actually speaks to Jacob and he then blesses him. He renames him Israel and he says, go be fruitful and multiply because from you many nations will come and from you kings will come. So then we see, okay, go fruitful, be multiplied. There's the promise. There's the blessing. What happens next? Uh, The favorite son, Joseph, who is a picture of Christ, gets sold into slavery. Judah has a son. He's so wicked, God kills him. Judah has a second son. He's so wicked, God kills him. Judah leaves his family behind explicitly going against what God plainly said to Abraham about not going and not marrying with Canaanites. He then marries a Canaanite. And then from Tamar, so yes, even though Tamar lied, her actions of deceiving Judah actually forced Judah to end up Obeying the law. And from the line of Judah comes Jesus. It's an incredible picture of what I would argue when Jesus sends out his disciples into the world. uh, He tells them to be wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. Tamar is the one who actually restores the the line and the blessing of God and a family line is changed forever. Tamar then later gives birth to two sons and uh, I just have to notice God's goodness here. Uh, Tamar had been praying and begging for a child for years (laughs) and God gives her two. Uh, It harkens someone back to Actually, Jacob's mother, Rachel, and Jacob himself was a twin with Esau. And similar to Jacob and Esau battling in the womb, there's a battle going on with Tamar's twins. Uh, One of the twins pops an arm through, and that's just the language in the Bible. Uh, And he is assumed and identified as the older brother who would receive all the inheritance. But almost like a race, the the second brother actually is the one who breaks on forth through. And he is the one who receives the inheritance. The presumed second child becomes the first child. And he is the one who gets the inheritance. Perez, he is the one who gets all uh, the blessings of a firstborn. And he is the one through his line comes Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of how God actually, to shame the strong, chooses the weak, chooses the second and say, these are my people, and this is where I come from. Now, you, you might be, um, you might relate to Tamar in, in many regards. Maybe 
you have, maybe just reading this is hard for you because you have some abuse in your past or uh, you have some family that has been abused. And, and I just want to say, I, I am so sorry. I, I cannot even begin to fathom how you feel. And, and maybe you have had moments in your life where you're wondering, I mean, similar to probably like tomorrow was, is there any hope for me? I hope that this story could encourage you that though you've had nights where you've just felt so lost and abandoned by God, God has not forgotten you. Isaiah actually speaks to the restoration of Israel. And in Isaiah prophecy, he's speaking on behalf of God in Isaiah 49, starting at verse 13. And he says, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on the afflicted ones. But Zion, God's people, said, the Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has forsaken me. God responds and says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls, your walls of protection are ever before me. They're ever before my mind. Palm? Uh, that word palm, palm. Uh, is Tamar. So he's saying here, just like I didn't forget Tamar, I have not forgotten you. And he says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. God has not forgotten you. And he is working in the midst of your brokenness for something good and glorious. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, what, what about Judah? Uh, the story just kind of ends and he, he repents, sure, but like it, it just then says like he just doesn't sleep with Tamar again. It's not like he's just this awesome guy. Where's his redemptive arc? Well, uh, if you go into the back half of Genesis, if you keep going through the story, we see a pretty amazing moment. Uh, Jacob, at the end of his life, is about to die. And he calls all his sons together. And he blesses Judah. And he says this. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now, uh, real quick, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph at one point goes to his brother and he says, Brothers, I had this dream where you all were bowing down before me. Side note, I mean, I kinda, you can kind of see why they were like, we're going to kill you for that. <laughs> he says, you're bowing down before me. Uh, notice what happens here. The line switches. You think it would come through Joseph. Joseph is the righteous one. Joseph is one later, uh, just right after the story, he flees Potiphar's house and is actually sexually righteous. Joseph should be the guy that, comes, that Jesus comes from. But no, it's Judah. The line changes and it goes through Judah. Jacob said, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The kingship line that was promised to Abraham, 
that was promised to Isaac, that was promised to Jacob, now is promised to Judah. And Jesus comes from that man. David in Psalm 78, 67 puts, actually puts it like this. He kind of gives almost an account of what happens with this line. And at one point he says, he rejected God. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. That's incredible. Because maybe you relate to, to Judah today. Maybe you're thinking, uh, I have been wicked in my life. I have been sexually immoral. I have lied. I have unfortunately abused people. I am not worthy enough to have my name next to Jesus. There is no way I am deserving of that. John beautifully puts in Revelation an answer to those feelings. He says in Revelation 5, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. At the end of history, it is Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that is worthy. And from that moment... You and I are then made worthy. So do you feel unworthy to have your name next to Jesus? Just look at this story. None of these people should have their names next to him. It should not have gone through Judah. Judah forsaken his family. It it should not have been Tamar. None of these people should have their names next to Jesus. Just like us, none of us are worthy enough to have a seat next to Jesus, but rather it is only because Jesus was worthy enough to go on the cross and to take our penalty on the cross that we are now made legally right in the eyes of God. And anybody, no matter where you come from, no matter what your past looks like, anyone can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved and you will then be deemed worthy and you'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit Promised, delivered, secured forever. That's the beauty of this story. One of my favorite uh, Christmas traditions is, uh, is our tree, is our family tree. Uh, so my, my parents started it. We're kind of continuing it on. Um, uh, all our tree is connected with ornaments that tie back to moments in our history or kind of some special moments in our lives. So there's like uh, my first Christmas ornament I ever made uh, that looks terrible, but I was a first grader. Um, 
to just different moments to fun even like pictures of it's like it's Ashley and I and just our dog and it's like Ashley and I with Knox and now us as a whole family. It's just all these different ornaments. They all tie back to these amazing moments in our lives. And it's really cool. It's always fun to have people over and, you know, they look at our tree and you can kind of go back to all these different things. But I was thinking about this in light of this story. Um, I, I don't have ornaments about the times like where I really jacked it up as a husband. I don't have ornaments on there where I really messed it up as a dad. I, I, don't, I don't do that. But this is what's so amazing about God. The genealogy is essentially God displaying all the brokenness in his family line, all the brokenness of humanity, and he's putting it on for full display for everyone to see and saying, it doesn't matter how broken these people are. It's not about how broken they are. It's about how good and glorious I am. And he displays it proudly for a world to see that's longing for hope. So can I encourage you? I'm joining in with you today. Can this Christmas season, we have some beautiful conversations where you tell your story, all the messy details and all. Sure, let's talk about the college football playoff and who got what wrong and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, let's talk about fun. Yeah, the best Christmas movies ever. Absolutely. Let's have those conversations. But besides all of that, can we share our stories beautifully broken and messy? As Ephesians 2, Paul would put it like this, that we all were dead in our trespasses and sins. We once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, just like Judah. We had followed Jesus, or we had forsaken Jesus, and we had followed the enemy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, Christ Jesus made us alive. And then he raised us up. He seated us right next to Jesus at the throne. And my favorite, one of my favorite parts here in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All the times that you and I went astray, all the times that you and I just took our eyes off Jesus and said, I don't want anything to do with you. God takes all of that and he puts it on full display for a world, just like an ornament on a tree, longing for hope, questioning, could God ever come through for me? Could God ever do something with the brokenness in my life he puts it on display and he says, there's hope for you because a baby was born in Bethlehem who would become the worthy one from the line of Judah by way of Tamar. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you that it is done it's finished. And in the middle of our brokenness, you don't turn away from, but rather you enter in and you work all things 
for your glory. I love how you close out Genesis 2 and you say, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And so I pray today, Lord, if there's anyone here who is so stuck in shame, who is hurting from past, that you will meet them, that they will be encouraged, that you willingly left your throne to enter into this world to redeem us and buy us back. We love you, Lord.